I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you all for coming today. My name is Robbie Samuel. I'm the president of the Tocqueville Society here. Our society celebrates thinkers of the traditionalist, classically liberal, and anti-totalitarian schools of thought. Uh, we're very privileged to have uh, Senator Santorum here today. Uh, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors of the lecture, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and recognize that this is uh, a bit of a controversial subject uh, in international affairs today. We ask that you please be civil during the Senator's lecture, and he will engage uh, any sort of questions or comments you have uh, during the question and answer session. session. And also, if you have a copy of his book, It Takes a Family, he's willing to sign them after the question and answer session. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce the chair of today's lecture, uh, Dr. Alan Sked, Senior Lecturer in International History here at the LSC. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's always a great pleasure to, uh, to introduce uh, a distinguished speaker from the United States. Uh, today we have a very distinguished speaker indeed, uh, Senator Rick Santorum. Uh, I'll just give you a bit of his background so that you'll know where he's coming from. Uh, his academic background, since we're at university, is that he's a BA from Penn State, an MBA from Pittsburgh, a JD from the Dickinson School of Law. Uh, his political career, of course, is why, which is why you, you know him, is that he, at the age of 32, uh, became a Republican congressman from Pennsylvania and he served in the House from 1991 to 1995. Then, at the age of only 36, he became uh, a Republican senator uh, from Pennsylvania and he served from 1996 to 2006. From 2000 to 2006, he actually held the office of chairman of the Senate Republican Conference, which is the third highest Republican office in the Senate. Well, today he is Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the EPPC, where he has established a special program to identify the threats now facing the West and facing America. He's the author of a distinguished work in conservatism called It Takes a Family, uh, Conservatism and the Common Good. He says he'll sign copies of those for those of you who have some. Um, but this is his first book. He's now working on a second book uh, on the international uh, threats facing the West. Uh, I don't want to preempt him in any ways. He's well known in America, not, not, not only uh, because of his political past, he also is a commentator on the Fox News channel. Uh, anyways, without more to do, may I just say what a signal pressure it is uh, to welcome him here to the LSE to debate his ideas with us. So, without anything more from me, Senator Rick Santoni. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. I appreciate that uh, introduction, and uh, let me uh, thank you and uh, the folks at uh, the Tocqueville Society, as well as ISI and LSE, for uh, giving me the opportunity to be here. And I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, uh, when they... Uh, we talked about coming to uh, uh, across the pond to, to do a, a discussion. I've been going to schools all over the United States uh, to uh, talk about this subject. I've been to probably 15 to 20 uh, so far in the last year. Uh, many of our greatest institutions, uh, we've had uh, some rousing discussions uh, about this, uh, this topic. 
Uh, but it was uh, we approached the idea of coming over here and, uh, and and talking about it. I I looked forward to this opportunity because uh, this, as I have been told, is the most international of universities uh, in the world, and uh, this is obviously a, a topic that is of, uh, of great importance not just to the people of the United States and students there, but uh, by its very nature, important to uh, people here and all around the world. This is, at least from my perspective. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is the uh, is the great conflict that uh, sort of uh, uh, has influence uh, on everything we are and everything we do, and I think will dictate uh, you young people and will dictate uh, the uh, uh, the currents of your life more than any other issue. Uh, and so I think it is important to uh, uh, to at least hear this perspective of of me. Now let me uh, fill in what. Uh, the doctor did wasn't uh, particularly clear. I, I lost my election in 2006, so uh, I, I, uh, I think it's fair to say that my my position that I'm laying out here is not a necessarily majority position in America. Uh, so I, I don't come here, and please don't take it that this is the, you know how America looks at this issue. Uh, one of the reasons that I I think I lost was because I've held this position, and so uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, as I uh, as I travel around, as you'll hear, I have issues with both sides of the political spectrum with how they're dealing with this issue. And so I'm, in a sense, a commentator and critic of, uh, of what I see the, the dynamic taking place within our own country and uh, is, is maybe a voice in the wilderness, but I happen to believe that uh, the positions that I'm, that I'm staking out here uh, are ones that are, should be contemplated and I think have a, a lot of validity the, the deeper you dig. In fact, if you look at my history in the United States Senate and in the Congress, uh, I was a leader in the Senate, uh, as, the introduc- as, uh, as, as the doctor said, but uh, my leadership was usually not on the area of foreign policy. I did uh, a fair amount of foreign policy work. I was on the Armed Services Committee, but most of the work that I did was, was really on cultural issues. Uh, I was uh, seen as more of a cultural warrior uh, on issues like abortion and marriage and stem cell research and uh, issues as this, uh, the book uh, It Takes a Family, really issues around the family, issues around the common good and how we care for those who are the least of, uh, in society, not just here, uh, not just in our country, but also around the world. I was a leader. I worked very closely with, a, actually, I, I consider him a friend. I think he would say the same. Bono and I worked together on AIDS. Uh, yes, believe it or not. Elizabeth, my daughter's here. Let me introduce her. And I do so because she met Bono on many occasions and, uh, and because we worked very closely together. Uh, and so I, I've, I've been on sort of those issues. And the reason I got involved in this um, was the more I learned about this issue, the more I understood about the nature of the threat that confronted us in the West, uh, the more I felt that this was not just an issue of, uh, of military success, but an issue that really was had, a, had another component other than a physical component, a war, but a, an ideological one that was really at the core of, of who we are in the West, and in particular, for my concern, was who we are as, as, uh, as citizens of the United States. And so I took that up because I was a cultural warrior, if you will. Uh, I saw this as really the ultimate culture war. It's not just a war within the culture as to who we are, but whether we are prepared as a culture to confront an ideology that is, in my estimation, antithetical to what the West stands for. And so... I went out and, um, and during my last two years of my campaign and uh, talked about this, wrote on it, gave lectures, uh, and uh, the people of Pennsylvania said, 
no, we don't we don't buy this. We don't like the war. We don't like this idea uh, that that this war is actually even more serious than you than the president suggests it is. And uh, you can go off and do something else. So here I am. Uh, and so I I. I I will talk here. I, I never know how long I'm going to talk because I don't write out my speeches. I just sort of whatever the spirit moves me to do, I do. And if you're if uh, the spirit's somewhere busy doing something else, I'll be you know a short period of time. If he happens to be hanging around, I might be a little longer. Uh, and then I'll take whatever time is left uh, for uh, for questions. And I really do look forward to that. I I have a truncated version of the talk that I usually give for for purposes that I. Uh, I, I hope to learn a lot today. I hope uh, you have something uh, after the result of this dialogue that you can take home and, and think about. But uh, because of the unique nature of this audience, uh, I wanted to leave more times uh, for questions. Uh, I will say that uh, this is my first trip to London. I know people who have, you know, most United States senators are over here quite a bit. I never did. Uh, the principal reason is uh, we have six children at home, uh, and we're expecting our seventh, by the way, in, in, a, couple of, in a couple of months. Uh, and uh, no, I'm not an Orthodox Jew or Muslim. I am a Catholic, and uh, and so it's one of those. Had to be an either Orthodox Catholic, Orthodox Jew, or Muslim. But I am I am or a Mormon. I guess you could be a Mormon. But um, so those those are sort of the places that you go if you have big families. So I'm I'm the uh, I'm the Catholic breed. And uh, we uh, as a senator, I was. I was in a tough state, Pennsylvania, which had gone Democratic in the last number of presidential elections, and I was this rare breed in Pennsylvania as a conservative. Uh, we hadn't elected a conservative to any office in Pennsylvania for quite a long time, and uh, I not only won, but won re-election, and I did so because I spent most of my time in Pennsylvania, and I wasn't traveling to London. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that that and my family obligations that sort of kept me there, but this is my first trip here. Yet, this is a, uh, a country and a town where if, you, if, I, if I look at uh, the folks that I modeled myself after uh, in public life, uh, the two people that uh, I had portraits of in my office uh, were not Americans. Uh, they were actually Brits. Uh, one was uh, William Wilberforce, and the other uh, was Thomas More. And both of those people, for, um, for obvious reasons, at least to me, were, were people that, uh, in public life uh, who were uh, models of principle uh, and compassion and of conviction and the courage to follow through with those convictions, irrespective of the consequences of that. Now, thankfully, in the case of Thomas More, I don't, I'm not facing those types of consequences, but uh, I, I suffered a political death, not, a, not, not an actual death. Uh, but, uh, you know, like Thomas More, we could rise again at some point. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping to do that uh, in, at, at some point in time. But uh, for now, uh, I, I look at their inspiration uh, to continue to uh, to take this battle, uh, and I have an affinity, therefore, with uh, with the people in this country. And uh, as even though I'm a first generation American, I'm an Italian American. My my father was born in Italy. Uh, I have never been to this country yet. I think, like most Americans, we have a a, a kinship and a bond with the UK that's unique in the world. Obviously, we are a uh, an offshoot. Of, of the UK, and that still lives very much uh, in the hearts and minds of, uh, of people in this country, even those who are, like in my case, uh, have nothing, no real connection uh, to, uh, to this country. And I think in part it's because of the history of the two countries uh, as allies, and uh, obviously a history of the countries as our, our culture comes from British culture. Uh, we have certainly tweaked it a little bit, uh, but uh, we are, we are see us in many respects as one 
with, uh, with the British people. And, and certainly from a national security point of view, whether you go from just the recent conflicts of, um, of World War II and, and the Cold War, uh, the two major conflicts, if you will, that, uh, of, of uh, the last few generations, uh, we have been on the same page. I mean, when you think of uh, FDR, you think of Churchill. When you think of Reagan, you think of Thatcher. Uh, and here we are in another conflict together. Uh, this one a little bit, uh, I would say, compared to the other two, a little bit more tenuous of, of a relationship. And that's, again, one of the reasons I wanted to come over because I, I, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about it from the standpoint of, uh, of um, not just the current conflict, uh, and when I say current conflict, I mean the wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, but the long-term ideological conflict that we were going to be confronting and uh, with the hope of, at least from my hope, uh, of confronting it together. Let me just break down how I see uh, this war in, in, in sort of two pieces. Uh, number one is the physical contact, uh, uh, the physical context, excuse me, and that is the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about that. If you have questions about it, you know, the particulars of how we're prosecuting the war, uh, the only thing I'll say is I, I think it is absolutely legitimate for the American people and for the people uh, here in this room to look at the way that war has been prosecuted uh, from a military standpoint and a diplomatic standpoint, and, and certainly uh, you can uh, legitimately pick a whole host of issues that have been mishandled and, and done incorrectly. And I was part and parcel to some of those decisions uh, and looking back and, and seeing, in, in some respects, the errors of our ways. Uh, I don't necessarily, uh, I don't go to the point where I'm saying we should not have been involved in either of those conflicts. I still believe that it was the right choice. But as far as the management, the tactical management of those engagements uh, left a lot to be desired. Having said that, uh, I think there is, uh, particularly with respect to Iraq, a, a change that is going on over there that, uh, that is, uh, provides some hope uh, that uh, the objectives that were originally put forward can be achieved. I, I don't think I would have said that. I know I would not have said that a year, from, uh, a year ago. But I, I am uh, more sanguine today about uh, the prospects of that and uh, am hopeful that we can still hold this uh, uh, alliance together such as it is uh, to, to, to be successful. And the reason I, I feel that way is because of the other issue, the other conflict that we are engaged in, and that is the, uh, uh, the ideological conflict uh, between uh, what I – and I'm going to define terms here. Uh, I, you've heard me talk about the West, our allies – but define with the enemy. Uh, the enemy are, I, I term as jihadis. Now, let me be very clear about that. Do I mean all Muslims? No, I do not. What I mean are people who subscribe to the ideology, theology, let's just be very clear, it is both, the theology of a group of people who have, over the past 20 years, repeatedly attacked the West and have a very clear doctrinal uh, position as to what their objections, uh, objectives are, both from a, a theological and ideological point of view. And they are carrying forward in those. Are they based in Islam? Yes, they are. They are. I know I've had many lectures and talked to many folks uh, at, at meetings like this who would say, these people are not Muslims. Um, I know people in the Muslim community would like to, to, to disown them, and I respect you for that. I think that's great. But you cannot ignore the fact that these people are uh, are, are deriving their authority from Islamic texts and see themselves as the true Muslims and those who criticize them as not being Muslims as not the true Muslims. 
And so I speak as someone who is not a Muslim and looks at people who both claim to be the real deal. And, uh, and this is an issue that we'll, I'll talk more about later, but hopefully we'll have even more discussion, that I think is at the heart of, of how we have to long-term address this issue, that this is not an issue that ultimately the West is going to, uh, to be the, uh, the principal player in defeating this enemy, that if we do not have participation within the Muslim community in defeating this theology and this ideology, uh, then we are, uh, we are in for we. I'm talking about the main, quote, the rest of the Muslim community as well as the West are in for a very long, difficult, and bloody struggle uh, for, a long, for quite some time. So let's talk, I want to focus in on the ideological structure because what we see going on in here in the UK, across Europe, in the United States, is an ever-decreasing support for this battle, ever-decreasing uh, uh, support for, for facing this conflict and, and defeating this enemy. And there are a lot of reasons for that. First, as I mentioned before, the frustration that everybody has that the battles that are engaged have not gone well or not gone as well as they could have gone. And I certainly understand that, and that's, uh, that is uh, a, it's a legitimate concern. But the greater concern I have is that both from the standpoint of how the left looks at this conflict and the right looks at this conflict, we have done a great disservice to, uh, to us in the West, and I, I speak specifically of the United States because I'm not as familiar with, with the debate and dialogue here in the UK, but certainly in the US, the left, as well as the president and his supporters on the right, have done a very poor job in laying, forth, laying out the framework for why this war is necessary. The left, I think, deserves more blame in the sense that the left has completely dismissed this threat as a threat. They've simply dismissed it as, as a political war or a war for oil or a, you know, trying to settle the score with Saddam Hussein from the first Bush administration. They have completely politicized the, uh, uh, the prosecution of this war and have been uh, uh, reluctant to engage uh, on, on the level of who this enemy is and, and why they are a threat to this country. And I, I always find this to be a little bit um, just curious because if, if you think about it, uh, the people on the left if you, if you were to con consider their ideology and the pillars of what this ideology is of the American left, and I'm sure they share a lot in common with the left here, but the pillars of, of the American left are antithetical to everything the jihadis espouse. And if you think about what the American left is all about, it's about you know uh, feminism, civil rights, homosexual rights, um, secularism, uh, reason, not faith in the public square, separation of church and state. I mean, you can go on down the list of where the left is on their public policy. And if I were to pick a group in the world that is against them on every single issue, on every single point, it's these jihadis. And yet, why do they seem to actually, in many cases, apologize for them? Uh, you know, well, you know, they're only attacking us because we've been mean to them, or because the you know the economy's bad, or there's there's excuse after excuse as to why these people are are being aggressive toward the West. None of which have anything to do with 
with the public with the with the ideology or theology that they hold, which is an opposite of, of, of where the left is. And so I think there's there's an intellectual dishonesty going on. And and as I traveled around American campuses, I'm not going to focus so much of that here, but as I've traveled around American campuses, I've really sort of challenged uh, the homosexual community. I've challenged the feminist community and say, you know, why are you not speaking out when Ahmadinejad comes to the United Nations and gets asked the questions at, at, at Columbia University as, you know, uh, about homosexuality in Iran, and he says, we don't have that problem there. And we have human rights activists reporting that over 4,000 gays have been killed there in, the, in, the, in this regime simply because they're gay. And yet the homosexual community just is silent when it comes to this issue. Same thing with the feminist community. Uh, again, American feminism and strict jihadi interpretation, Iranian interpretation of, of women's rights are pretty far apart. Yet, when it comes to the actions and the activities that go on within the radical Islamic world, the feminist community is quiet. I think that we have to both, again, I'm starting with the left, but I'm going to talk about the right. We have to, we have to be a little bit more honest about who we're dealing with here and try to, in, in some respects, put the politics aside. It's very hard for the left to do in America because they really hate George Bush. And, and I understand why they do. No, I mean, I don't agree with them, but I understand why they did. Get that, strike that from the record. Uh, but I understand, I mean, I understand it. But, but, they, but they need to understand that George Bush isn't going to be, he's gone in a year, less than a year. And, and this issue is not going to be gone, and they're going to have to come to grips with, uh, with what they're dealing with. Uh, the second is, is, is the right. Uh, and the American right uh, and this president has been, I believe, on a misinformation campaign from the very beginning of this war. Uh, misinformation campaign ever since the events of 9-11. And they have been politically correct in doing so. How does the President of the United States describe this war? What is it? It's a war on, anybody know? Terror. It's a war on terror. Is that true? What is terror? Terror is a tactic. She just, weapons of mass destruction, yeah. It's a tactic. Terror is a tactic. When Churchill talked about the enemy in World War II, did he say, we are going to war with, against Blitzkrieg? No. Did we say we're going to go war against kamikaze pilots? No. Those are military tactics, but they were not the enemy. In World War II and in previous wars, We've identified the enemy for who they are and what they believe. Nazism, fascism, totalitarianism, communism. It's an ideology. It's a belief structure that holds the enemy together for which they fight. But we define the enemy by a tactic. Or we say we're at war against terrorists. Well, is that true? Partially. But are we at war against all terrorists? No. We're not at war against the FARC in Colombia. We're not at war against elements here in the UK that are called terrorists. Or a whole host of other terrorist organizations around the world. We're at war with a particular group who has a particular ideology. And it's not just one group, but it's several groups, and they share that ideology. And including some governments, I would argue, that we are in conflict with, maybe not at war with at this point, that, have this, that hold this ideology. 
And so the president has not faced up to who we're, we're with. Why? Probably for the same reasons that we don't publish the cartoons in Dutch newspapers. Because we do not want to offend. The president of the United States is a very religious man. And he is someone who, as, Amer as most Americans are, loathe in our pluralistic society to tie any type of religion into something that we see as negative. Um, we choose not to do that. In this case, we must do that because it is the truth. And it's important for people to understand that truth in order to understand the reason for fighting this war. And so what I have said is that, again, you've heard the description, is that I've put the term jihadi out there. You say, well, that's a religious term. Yes, it is. Let me ask you, what does the enemy call us? What do the enemy use to describe their enemy? Infidels. Is that a religious term? Yes, it is. Why? Because they are fighting a religious war. Now, you would say, well, they can fight a religious war, but we don't have to. That's fine. But at least you have to know why they're fighting, what they believe in, and how they want to accomplish that. Now, I'm going to lay out to you in a moment uh, why the differences and, and, and the threats that I see out there to uh, and who this enemy is and, and how we in the West need to confront it. But I want to I take a little bit of a, a, a sidetrack because I think this is important. If we are going to understand the enemy, I think we have to also understand who we are. Because if we're in a, a war of ideas, a battle of ideologies, or even in some cases theologies, then we have to know by which we are fighting that. Who are we? And our ability to stand up against that. I would make the argument that America has been more willing to stand up against this threat and identify it, even though we don't say it. Even though we don't say it. If you ask Americans, and we've done polling on this, you ask Americans who we're at war with, they don't say terrorists. They don't say terrorists. They know, generally speaking, that we're at war against, and the terms that used in most polling is fundamentalist Muslims or you know, extremist Islamists or something like that. So they know... Most Americans, I would suspect most people in this room know that we're not at war against Colombian drug lords. Okay? We're at war against people who have this MO, okay? who have this theology. The problem is they don't really know much beyond that. They don't really know much about who these people are. At the same point in America and versus here is the question of who we are and our ability to fight it, because I think it's absolutely dependent upon that. Our ability to confront this worldview depends on the worldview that we have of ourselves. If you are a country that is a country that is convicted to the principle of multiculturalism, to the extent of letting anyone do what everybody wants to do without any restrictions or bounds, that there is no, in fact, dominant culture or predominant culture within, this, within the country, then the ability to confront other cultures becomes rather limited. If you're a country 
that believes in a particular worldview that holds together America, I will use an example, which I think still does. We look at multiculturalism, and I, I, I know I'm a conservative, so I, I, I admit that I, I have some prejudice in this regard. But I think most Americans, conservatives and non-conservatives, look at multiculturalism and sort of giggle. They don't take it seriously. They, they, they think it's political correctness, run amok. Americans still believe that there is an American ideal, that we are a melting pot, not that we don't include people, but people assimilate into American culture. And American culture means something. It is Western culture. America is built on the concepts of Western civilization. America is built on the concepts of Christianity, Judeo-Christianity in particular. Two, in the legacy of the Enlightenment. And three, the legacy of being a British entity. We get a lot of our culture and, 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 and civic identity from, from here. But we still, as Americans, hold to that. Overwhelmingly so, with the exception of some of the what we would call the fringes on, on the left. We hold to the fact that Western civilization was a good thing. That Western civilization established the predicate for a country as dynamic and free and prosperous and full of opportunity that America has become as the beacon of the world. That if it was, in fact, Christianity that established the primacy of the individual, that it was Christianity and Jesus Christ who said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, give unto God what is God, at a time when God was Caesar, and said, no, the state and the church are separate. You have different obligations to each, and that the individual is the one that is over the state, not the other way. That is out of Christian theology that is now accepted as common Western civilization. It was not Voltaire. It was Pope Galatius I in, I think, 495 A.D., who said that it is two orders, regnum and sacerdotium, the order of the state, regnum, the king, and the order of the sacred, two different orders. And in fact, as the Pope did in the, in, the, in, the, in the fifth century, said that we are not tied to the state, but we ride over the state because the individual has the relationship directly with God and has value and worth. These are, this is essential to who we are in the West. It's essential to who we are as, as, as Americans. Those two realms make freedom possible. The idea that is in the Judeo-Christian worldview that the individual has free will, that the individual has rights that must be respected by the state. The individual, in working with the state as, as a product of the Enlightenment, can, can draft laws, has a social contract with each of us, as we feel in America. We have this social contract that we will do things that are to the benefit of not just the majority, but to all citizens. And this social contract was vitally important that man can make laws and do so for the benefit of society. This is the, 
the foundation, the, the British common law, from the, from, the, from the people up. All of those things make who we are in the West, and I believe we should be quite proud of, of the contribution of Western civilization to the rights of man. Now, I think it's important to understand that in contrast with the worldview of those who we fight. Because the worldview of those who we fight is exactly the opposite of that worldview. The worldview of those who we fight do not believe, do not believe in the separation of church and state. One of the modern commentators, Ibn Qutab, said that separation of church and state within Islam is schizophrenia. He's one of the commentators that the jihadis refer to quite often. But these commentators within the strain of the Muslim tradition go back hundreds and hundreds of years and are very, very clear about the role of the individual within society. There is no separation of church and state. Islam unlike Christianity, developed differently. And we need to understand that to understand not only what the consequences of having the jihadis who want to fight us, but the impact of that within our own country. Islam was never a religion within a state. Like Christianity was a religion within the Roman state. It was not part of Rome. It was a persecuted religion for a long time. Why? Jesus never conquered. Jesus lost. Now, you can make the argument, certainly I would as a Christian, that he never wanted to win. But he didn't. He never reigned. He never ruled. Muhammad did. Islam is not a religion within the context of the political realm. It is the political realm. They are one and the same. There is no difference. There is no separation. Kitab is right. It is schizophrenia within the context of Islam, traditionally held by the Salafists, to see them as separate. They do not see them as separate. They see them as one. They also see the individual as someone whose objective is to submit to the will of Allah, not as a person of reason to build social contracts to develop laws to govern a separate state. In fact, if you, talk to, if you read what the jihadis and their, and their theologians going back hundreds of years have said, that Islam is perfect, Sharia in specific, the quote, this is from, I believe, also Kitab. Islam is perfect, Sharia is perfect and comprehensive. That there is no need for any additional laws. And in fact, any additional laws are a direct assault and a direct contradiction to the will of Allah. That's what they believe. They find democracy as the highest order of insult to their version of Islam because it is man questioning God's law, making laws additional to what God has already taken care of. Why? Because there was a society in which was run and ordered under this religion slash government. It is one and the same, and there is no need to improve upon it. Now, I just I want to step back at this point and say, I'm not suggesting, again, that all Muslims feel that way. But a lot do. 
And if you look at countries that are Muslim countries that are run by the Saudis, the Iranians, probably the two best examples, that are, quote, I would argue extremists. Some would not. I would. There is no room. There is no room for other than what the will of God is as, as laid out by the Sharia. And so this is important to understand in the context, particularly in the context here in the UK, when you hear certain clerics suggest that Sharia should be adopted here. It shouldn't be in the context of societies where we have a conflict between Western civilization and the worldview held by these jihadis. It's important to understand that, I'll give you an example. There's a, uh, a, f- a friend of mine, he's become a friend of mine, he's a Muslim. Um, his name is Tofiq Hamid, he's an Egyptian. As he says, he was a former jihadi. He, um, he talks about when he was recruited, and he trained, by the way, with Zawahiri. He knew Zawahiri and trained with him in Egypt. And he talks about when he was recruited and he came to the door of the mosque and he was told by his instructor, and I'm going to mess up the Arabic and I apologize, I don't speak the language, but I'm just doing it phonetically as he told me, al-fikr al-kufar, something like that, which is to reason or to think is an infidel. And the point I'm trying to make here is that within the context of this enemy that we deal with, the idea of reason goes out the door. To think, to bring Western, and, the, and the, again, this is from Tafika Mead, to bring Western ideology, reason, the Greek philosophers, into this realm is completely inappropriate. And so we have an enemy that has a very clear philosophy of what they want to accomplish and how they need to do that. And how do they want to do it? It's very clear. They have been very... I mean, I, I find this remarkable that we don't hear much about it, but if you read what they say, they're very clear about what their intentions are. Their intentions are to take this religion, the final revelation that has usurped and dispensed with Judaism and Christianity. It is the final revelation of God. It, is, it, it surplants... It does not... Christianity and Judaism, as Jesus said, Jesus did not come to overturn the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And so when we look at Christianity and Judaism, you look at them as one following the other and one as a building block for the other. They are not inconsistent by any stretch of the imagination. One is simply the one you either recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, or you don't believe that he's the Messiah that Jews have been waiting for, and, and one will come. But other than that, if you look at, at the two faiths, they are logical, sequentially ordered. Islam is not. Islam is not. Islam does, it rejects all basically the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is not the Messiah. Abraham is not Abraham. They're different people. Moses is not Esau. Mary is not the Mary of the, of, of, of the Quran. They are different, foundationally different. And so they, you, you, have, you need to look at them as they believe that the Judeo-Christian world has got it wrong. And it is their obligation to bring truth. 
I think it's another form of liberation theology. They want to liberate the world from darkness. And they feel it's their obligation to do so in any way necessary. And they're very clear about the way they want to do it. So you have a theology that is different and, as I said, as far different as certainly the secular world can have it. A, and B, you have a group of people who are willing to make use all means necessary, and C, for the first time in a long time, they now have the resources to accomplish it. The reason we are at war here, and the reason this is a problem now, is because of one three-letter word. Oil. If not for oil, the jihadis having this belief and this has been around for hundreds of years in some form or another, would it be no consequence to anybody in this room because they would have no way in which to project that theology and their power to threaten the world. But because of hundred and some dollar oil, they now have resources and therefore technology. Thomas Friedman wrote a book called The World is Flat. It is indeed Everybody has access to everything. We, in fact, have the ability, they have the ability, living in caves, to have technical weapons that can destroy huge centers of populations, bring down communication systems, destroy civilizations, if you will. We have Iran, who is a committed, who's committed to development of nuclear weapons, and who has said that they would like to see certain countries wiped off the face of the earth. And it made it very clear, particularly in, in the case of the Iranians with the, the Shia Islam and this particular group of Shia Islamists who are running the countries, preoccupation with the return of the 12th Imam. And the consequences of that, which again, how many people, I, I know, I'm sure there's many Muslims here that, that will answer the question, yes, but if you're not Muslim, don't, uh, if you're Muslim, don't raise your hand on this one, because I expect you to know this. I want to talk about people who are not Muslims, whether they know this. How many people know who the 12th Imam is or the Mahdi? Raise your hand. One, two, okay. Maybe less than 5% of the room. Now, let me just throw this at you for a minute. This is a country that is a hostile country to the West. I think that's fairly obvious. This is a country that is in the process of enriching uranium. They admit to it. The nuclear regulatory folks and the, and the UN and say, yep, they're enriching this stuff. They've got centrifuges going right now. They're developing rocketry in conjunction with the North Koreans right now. So they have rocketry. They have enrich they're enriching uranium. We have a national intelligence estimate that came out that was a big deal, that they're not, they're not trying to weaponize this into a bomb, and therefore they don't have a nuclear program. That is one of three things you have to do to have a nuclear weapon. The first and the hardest by far is to, to enrich the uranium. The second hardest is to develop the rocketry to deliver it. And the third and the easiest is to take the weaponized uranium and, and being able to, to put it in a warhead. The thing that they, quote, suspended was the last. My guess is because they were so behind on the first two that it wasn't necessary. And so you have a country like Iran who is without question pursuing nuclear energy, according to Ahmadinejad that believes in a theology and when Ahmadinejad came to the United Nations he talked about the 12th Imam when he writes letters to the president he does every speech he begins by talking about the Mahdi 
and his imminent return. They talk about it, not only they talk about it, but it's everywhere within Iran. This imminent return of the Mahdi. They spent $20 million on a, on a road between Jam, the Jamkaran well in Qom and Tehran. Why? To set a stage for the Mahdi to return. None of you know this. Or very few of you know this. And you say, well, who cares? Who cares who this Mahdi is? Well, maybe if you knew who he was, and if our leaders told you who he was, you might be a little more concerned. Let's go back. The Mahdi, the 12th Imam, is the 12th Imam of Shia Islam, the 12th leader of Shia Islam. Shia Islam and Sunni Islam broke up at the very beginning because of an argument over who should be the leader. The Sunnis chose among a group of people to elect someone to be the leader. The Shias did not believe in that. They believed that it should be a descendant of Muhammad. And as a result, the only descendant available was the husband of his only surviving daughter, Fatima. His name was Ali. And so they are called the Shiat Ali, Shia, the followers or party of Ali. He was the first imam. He had sons, second and third imam, grandsons, fourth imam, and so on. Now, the commonality between all of the imams is they were all killed by the Sunnis in an attempt to try to cut off the line so they could get rid of this nuisance. The last such imam was the 11th imam. I think his name was Hassan al-Askari. <coughs> Ever heard the name Askari? Anybody? You might have heard it because a year and a half ago, a mosque was blown up, the Golden Dome Mosque. Remember? And all the violence... Pursuit came forth after it was over two years ago now, I think of it. All the violence really ignited after this was blown up. Why? It's also known as the Al Askariya Mosque. This is where Al Askari is buried. This made people very mad, if you were a Shiite, of what the Sunnis did. History in this area of the world is not history as we know it in the West. It's it's alive and, and vibrant today in many respects. And so what happened in 874 was the 11th Imam, who was being held in prison by the Sunnis for quite a long period of time, I think 10 or 11 years, might be shorter than that, it's just memory. The Sunnis were now assured, at least in their mind, that he did not have any issue, and therefore they killed him in 874. The Iranian story is that he in fact did have a child, a 12th Imam. His name is Muhammad Ahmadi, who appeared at the funeral of the 11th Imam and said the funeral prayer at the 11th Imams. This is the Iranian story, the Iranian Shiite story. At that point, the Shiites who were there rounded him up, took him, and whisked him off into hiding so the Sunnis could not get him and kill him. And he ruled for 70 years from a well in Qom, the Jam Quran well. And from that well, he had interlocutors who ruled, told the Shias what to do and how to govern. And at the 70th year, at the five days before the death of the last interlocutor, the interlocutor announced that the, the 12th Imam, the Mahdi, was in fact the one that's predicted in one of the Islamic, it's not in the Quran, but it's one of the Islamic writings that the Shias 
believe in, that he is the predicted one who is going to come at the end of times. With Jesus, I might add. Come at the end of times. To rule the world for Islam. He will come after Armageddon and rule the world. This is the Shia belief within Iran. And you say, okay, well, who cares? Why does that matter? Well, let's think about this. You have someone who believes that the Mahdi is coming. Ahmadinejad. The Mahdi is coming. He said, he said it just a few months ago that he'll be here within two years. Or he'll be here within 18 minutes. He's using rather definite terms to describe this. He, he is focused on this. And you say, well, how does he know he's coming? Well, he's, he's coming at the end of times. Now, did you ever wonder why Western politicians overwhelmingly, certainly in the U.S., I can't speak here, but in the U.S., Democrats and Republicans alike are very clear on one thing. Iran should not get a nuclear weapon. Okay? Iran should not get a nuclear weapon. Did you ever wonder why that is? Why it's okay for Pakistan to have a nuclear weapon? Why it's okay for other Muslim countries to have a nuclear weapon? But it's not okay for Iran to have a nuclear weapon. I would make the argument the reason is is because most folks in the government know exactly what I just told you. And they put two and two together. There's a group in Iran claimed that Ahmadinejad is a member of that group called the Hojatiya. And the Hojatiya believe that the Mahdi will come. And we just can't wait for him to come. And, you know, Khomeini talked about well, the Mahdi needs to come, but we need to be more orthodox. And that's one of the reasons for the Islamic Republic is we have to have Sharia law. And, you know, the reason the Shias have been a minority and repressed group within the world of Islam is because they have not been faithful and the Mahdi has not blessed them and all these things. Ahmadinejad has a little different point of view. These Hojatiya have a little different point of view. They believe, think about it. When does the Mahdi come? At the end of the world. How do we get the Mahdi to come? Bring about Armageddon. Now you say, oh, come on. This is just theological mumbo-jumbo. It is, unless you're president of a a country that believes it and has the ability to do it. And I suspect, since none of you knew who the Mahdi is, none of you knew that. Does that make a difference? I think it does. I think, and that's just one element. There are other elements within this jihadi world that we just have very little awareness of. And as such, we take this enemy and I think disrespect them. We disrespect their capability because they happen to be in a world, in an area of the world that historically, at least in the last hundred years, has not been on the forefront of innovation and technology. And so we sort of see them as a little backward. They can't compete with us. They're not a threat to us. How can they hurt us? The world is flat. It's so flat that countries like Iran can get weapons that can destroy the world, potentially, if we don't stop them. And they won't be stopped unless you confront them. And they won't confront them unless you know who you are and why you're fighting. This is the challenge. Now you say, well, look, if it's that bad, it'll become apparent. And when it becomes apparent, we'll deal with it. I'll close with this. 1940. Winston Churchill gave a speech that I quote when I travel around America. It's a speech he gave about after the fall of France. The speech that ends, the British Empire lived for a thousand years. 
that this will be her finest hour. In June 18th of 1940, Britain stood alone against the consummate evil. We think now as Westerners and we think of the evil people of the world in the last few hundred years. Hitler certainly would come in not the top, the top five for sure. Right? The personification of evil. He had just conquered France. He has spread this horrific ideology all throughout Europe, Italy, Japan, all joined together. The world going into darkness. Well, what did the United States do? Tom Brokaw wrote a book called The Greatest Generation where he praised and praised the generations of Americans who fought World War II as this greatest of generations. But what did the greatest generation in America, according to Brokaw, and most Americans would now agree with that, do in June of 1940 as Britain stood alone against abject evil? Nothing. We did nothing. We didn't do nothing for just a few days. We didn't do nothing for just a few weeks. We did worse than nothing, almost. We did nothing until Japan attacked us a year and a half later. In the summer of 1941, a year after this city was laid to rubble, our ally, our older brother, was almost leveled and defeated. And we sat and we watched and did nothing. The summer of 1941, by one vote, by one vote, the House of Representatives defeated a measure to eliminate the draft and disband the army. In the middle of this war, people sat and said, it's not our problem. We can deal with it if it's a problem for us, but it's just not our problem. I say that because it's not, if you came into this room, and you may leave this room, and most of you will leave this room, maybe all of you will, having not changed your opinion or not even had anything worthy to think about. But understand that it would not be unusual for you, as people of the West, to think that things can have a way of working themselves out without confronting the evil. That somehow or another, reasonable, rational people can make this work because that's who we are, reasonable, rational people. The problem is, as it was in World War II, and I would make the argument, I posit, as it is today, we are not dealing with reasonable, rational people. We are dealing with people who have a theological, even more so than that of Hitler, a theological motivation to accomplish something that they believe God is calling them to do and that they will not stop until they do it. And they now have the resources to do it. And they have a a Western civilization that is doubting themselves as to whether they even care to confront it because they don't have enough confidence in who we are to challenge who they are. That is a perfect storm that could lead to a very, very difficult time ahead. I'd be happy to take your questions. Thank you.
So if any of you uh, want to leave now before, uh, if you're in a hurry, uh, could you do so quietly and the rest of us will indulge in a question and answer session. Could you please address your questions to me and I'll send them to the Senator. Well, thanks very much indeed for a very clear, lucid, uh, profound um, analysis from your point of view of the present challenge from the Middle East. You make it crystal clear why and how uh, we're on the threshold of a very dangerous moment. Uh, I think a few people might want to know what happens next. Uh, but anyways, um, I won't ask any questions for the moment. Those of you who have a question, could you please raise your hand for the lady there, and then the lady there, and then the lady next to us. So three ladies to begin with. Thank you very much for your talk today. Um, you. You're very eloquent. I was a bit disappointed being a moderate Muslim myself, um, with your excess um, weight on the theological side, you had some um, inaccuracies on what Sharia law is. Firstly, Sharia law was defined and designed by uh, theologians, not by just using the Quran. This was an interpretation they had. And I do think that um, there should be a, um, an updated interpretation. The last interpretation was in the 8th century. Um, and there should definitely be a Muslim radical thought on it. And I totally agree with um, your threat. I'm all for that. And I, you know, <laughs> and I completely agree with the fear of Iran having nuclear weapons. Um, my own partner is Catholic, so I totally understand you know, um, your, your point of view. But I, I do think that um, your, your talk can also be perceived as inflammatory because there are very, there's a lot of people in this room that don't have the interaction um, with Muslims like, like my partner does, for example, that don't see the other side where there's a lot of Muslims living in this world that want to live in peace and feel very British or very American, but with inflammatory conversations like these, there's probably many Muslims in this room who probably feel serves them right if Iran has weapons because of the inflammatory um, weighting on the religion. What, what was inflammatory? Um, it, was, it was inflammatory because it was weighing on religion. It's, you hardly mentioned anything on politics and political power, which is what this is all about. It's not really about religion. It's about politics and power. Although these people see it as being um, religious and in religious right, it is not. And, and, it's, and I don't... Can, can, let, if, if, and I'd be happy... You, you just, I think, contradicted yourself. You said these people, the enemy, sees it as religious. And it's inflammatory to describe to you what they think. No, what I'm trying to say to you is um, I, what I found inflammatory is it felt like you were addressing um, the enemy as being Muslim. And I know no, you made that quite clear no, at the No, I made beginning. clear at the beginning. And I, I no. try to make it clear yes. throughout the course that we're talking about a group of people. And now, are there Muslims who consider themselves moderate who at certain points have intersections with them? Yes. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the ideology of the people who are motivated by faith. You say they're motivated by politics. They will tell you they're not motivated by politics. You can come to me and say, look, I see through them. This is what they're really about. These people, if you ask, they, they, they do everything a good Muslim's pray five times a day, they tie, they do all the five things they do. They, they read their Quran, they read the, they read the, the Sunnah. They, these people see themselves as orthodox Muslims, okay? And they are driven by that theology to do what they're doing. Now, you can say it's political. 
but I think we disrespect them and we minimize the threat that they pose because, unfortunately, since they are deriving all of their political capital from this theology, they have the ability to attract people who share bits and pieces of that theology into their camp, and they do. Um, I can't see how we are disrespecting them. We've gone into um, Iraq and made a complete mess of it. Could you pull the microphone a little away from your mouth because you're you're, you're muffled. (laughs) Well, I always get told to put it close to my mouth. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Is that better? Much better. Thank you. Okay. I think we are addressing it with our war on Iraq and the mess we've made of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, But going back to the point I was making earlier, I mean, what I have fears of, and which I've discussed before, is um, what, I mean, Hitler didn't get his way just overnight. It was, a, it was through a process of hatred towards the Jews. And it was the process where when people were, were killing, when a, a man was taking a daughter, uh, um, a girl across to have her killed because she was a Jew, it didn't, he thought he was doing the right thing in the name of religion. Sure. So, you know, we have to take into account that, you know, these inflammatory, and I still will say this was quite an inflammatory talk, but I do thank you for it because it was very knowledgeable and I respect your opinion. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Sorry, you. Can, uh, can we move on to the next? Well, but no, finish what you were trying to Yeah, say. I, I think it's, I want to I I differentiate between the comments you made with respect to, to, to Nazi Germany. I think we've gone to the opposite end of the spectrum uh, in, in, in relation to this war. I don't know of anybody that is, uh, it, it, certainly in, in, in the U.S., that are going out and, and you know, persecuting Muslims for, uh, uh, for, for anything that was done, even though, obviously, the people who committed these crimes were Muslims. So we have, we have reacted, I think, just the opposite. We have said it's not about anything to do with Islam. I mean, the first two public appearances after 9-11 by President Bush, you know what they were? One was at a, first one was at a mosque. The second was a group of Muslims at the White House. Both of which were saying, this has nothing to do with Islam. I understood why he did it. I think he sent the wrong signal. Because it has something to do. Okay? Now, it is, and this is sort of, you get, where do we go now? And I, this is my opportunity to lead into that. Where we go now is, is the Islamic community. I mean, I'm a Catholic. I'm not going to tell how the Muslim community is going to deal with people within their faith that are problematic more than problematic. But what those of us who are observers of the Muslim community see, and I see it even in my lectures, is that those who are, quote, truly moderate Muslims are very afraid to speak up against this, are very afraid to condemn them, are very afraid to to claim takfir against them and say these people are not Muslims. They won't do it. No, I don't know of any imam in the United States who has said that. Why? Because it's your eternal soul that you're, that you're, you're resting on, on claiming that they're not Muslim. The problem is we don't see, as, 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 a, as a Christian, as an outsider, I don't see the conflict within the, within the Muslims. I don't see Muslims speaking up, moderate Muslims speaking up, and not just condemning the violence. It's easy to condemn the violence. You have to condemn the root of the violence. You have to look at, I'll give you an example. Two examples. One, University of Virginia gave a talk. Uh, many questioners, most of the questioners that ask questions, and I, I deliberately go out and I pick people who are Muslims. And I say, how do they know they're Muslim? Well, if they're wearing a hijab, a pretty good idea they're Muslim. 
And so, uh, and so I, you know, I would go and I'd, I'd pick out people who either had T-shirts or identified themselves because I wanted to hear from that community. And I did. And it was all inflammatory, hater, this, that, and the other. Okay, fine, and I accept that. Uh, this is a controversial topic. I understand. When you're talking about someone's faith, it's hard. And so I, 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 I respect that I may be stepping on some, on some toes here. But I was with a couple of uh, uh, the person who sponsored the talk at UVA, and I said to them, you know, it's, it's funny. So every talk I get, the, the Muslims that come are always, you know, very agitated about what I've, what I've said and disagree with what I said. And he said, well, that's not true. I said, what do you mean that's not true? He said, weren't you there? Listen, he said, I had 10, 15 people come up to me, all of them Muslims, saying, thank you very much. This was really a breath of fresh air. We needed to hear that. One after another after another. And that's the point. The people who speak up are the people who disagree. The people who are the true moderates are afraid to speak up. Something has to happen where the moderates are no longer afraid to speak up. Is there something we can do? I don't know. But it's something that has to happen within the community where true moderates, not condemning violence, condemning the theology of the violent ones is the problem. Um, You mentioned how important it is that we know who we are as a culture and that the U.S. is uh, a melting pot for its assimilation. Uh, I know in Canada it's been described as a mosaic. Um, And right now one of the things that the U.S. and Europe is grappling with is immigration and how to integrate those populations. I was wondering if you could comment on where does integration stop and where does assimilation stop and where do we say that this is a separate culture and this is not compatible or this is how far it's going to be compatible or where does it go? And I was wondering, especially if you can comment on in the U.S. with the um, Hispanic population, and especially the language divide that's yeah, coming Yeah, that's up. great. I mean, that's one of the things that the, the British gave us. They gave us a common language. Um, my father came to this country speaking one language, and it wasn't English. Um, and, but when he came to this country, I heard stories of him growing up. He was prohibited from speaking Italian. His parents said, you cannot, do not speak. You need to learn. You're an American now. You're an American. That has changed in some respects. We are not Canada. Our motto is, what's the motto of the United States? Anybody know? E pluribus unum. Okay, Latin scholars, what's it mean? Out of many, one. See, America is, by definition, about a melting pot. It is about a common culture. I mean, I could come here to the UK, I could live here a long time, I could establish citizenship, but I would never be British. You can come to America of any color, creed, nationality, and come to America, and you become a citizen, and you become an American because of what you believe in, because of the common culture. America is not about an ethnicity. It's about a common set of ideals. Now, maybe that's different in different countries, and I, and I, I certainly respect and, and understand that. But from the standpoint of America, we, we are not a mosaic. And if we become a mosaic, we, do not, we are not the country that we have been. Now, maybe that's a good thing in some people's minds. But from my perspective, people from all over the world don't want to come there because we are whatever we want to be. It's because America is something. 
And it is being threatened certainly by, I look, I'm, as a son of an immigrant, I am not against immigration. I am against illegal immigration. I am against immigration to the extent, and we are largest, we, we, more people are, more, I think the number is more people came in this country in the last 10 years than in all the previous 200 years. So we've had enormous immigration into the United States, a lot of it illegal. The big problem I have with illegal immigration and some of the immigration that we're seeing now in the U.S. is people aren't coming to be Americans. I have no problem with people coming to America if they want to be Americans, play by the rules, and become part of that great country. I don't want people coming to our country who want to live in a separate culture. I don't, because it's not who America is. If you, want, if you want to live your culture, then live where your culture is. If you want to live American culture, come to America. If, and if you don't like what America has to offer, don't come. But that, but, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm very welcoming, but there are, just like anybody, you welcome someone to your home, there are rules and regulations when you come to your home. You're just going to go in and just open the refrigerator and you know, eat whatever you want and destroy the place, chop up the furniture. No. No, you've got to live by the rules, right? I mean, you're welcome, but you've got you've to sort of play by the rules of how we, how we manage our home. And that's the problem. People want to come in this beautiful home with economic freedom, political freedom, religious freedom, and they want to live their own life and just intersect where it makes, makes them happy. Mm. That's okay if it's a really small group. It's not okay if it's a big group. Because then you have Quebec, then you have all sorts of problems. <laughs> okay? You have, I mean, it's just, it's just a mess. And, that's, and, and you're hearing talk of that in the southwestern part of the United States. Well, maybe, you know, there's going to be, uh, you, know, a, or, you know, a northern Mexico or something like that. No. And we're not going there. And, and you know, I, maybe, again, I'm a conservative. I like things. Uh, I think things have been pretty good in America. I think we need to conserve what's good. That doesn't mean that we don't need to change. But we don't need to forget about who we were and what made us the great country we are. Okay. Um, so this lady here, and then the gentleman over there. He doesn't look like a lady. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. I just have a quick question about uh, Islam and democracy, uh, because before the uh, countries in South Europe were democratized, they were say, or scholars were saying that Catholics, like Catholic countries, they couldn't democratize because of like. Uh, because of the theology behind it, like, yeah, it went against the principles of uh, democracy. And it's sort of like now we're saying the same towards Islam, but it might be that just with a bit more time, and also there's the example of the Philippines where the, you have, like, a democracy working in a Muslim country. Yeah, I, I'm of the belief that it, democracy can work in the Islamic culture. It cannot work in a radical jihadist Islamic culture because it is antithetical to that culture and to that theology. But in a truly moderate 21st century Islam, not 8th century Islam, I mean, if you look at things, I mean, I get this from, from Muslims all the time. They say, well, there are things in the, in, the, in the Bible that, you know, talk about stoning homosexuals and doing all these, I mean, you know, uh, you know all these things. And the point is, Yes, there are things in the Bible, but they're not taught in modern Judaism and modern Christianity because we've looked at that and we put 
the actions that occurred, particularly in the Old Testament, and we put them in the historical context in which they took place, and that the application is not to the current time, that, that that's not an applicable moral teaching. Islam is in the process, slowly, of trying to do that. There is, but we have to be honest about this. There is a there is a problem. A, no, it's a problem. It is harder for Islam to do that. Why? Because the roots of Christianity, the roots of Christianity, are of the Regnum and the Sacerdotium. They're separate realms. Jesus, very clear. Islam is not. Islam. No, I, 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 I pray for that. I literally do. I pray for that. I pray that that because we're not in the time of the Muhammad, we're not in, in the you know in the seventh century, we're we're at a different time and a different place. That this idea of two realms can be advanced successfully. It has heretofore been difficult to do. It has heretofore really not successfully happened over the long. I mean, Turkey has done it, but because their military makes it happen. It doesn't happen because the people, I mean, in fact, one of the big controversies we've seen over the last year is the Islamicization of Turkey and how, how, how far is the military going to let that go? It's not necessarily true democracy from, you know, it's sort of South American, but no offense to the South Americans, but it's, it's sort, of <laughs> South, sort of Central and South American democracy as, as we've known it in the past. Uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a difficult much more difficult. I think we need to, you need to recognize that. Muslims need to recognize that generally, that it's much harder in the Islamic world to do this. And it's going to take much more effort with that knowledge and with what I see the effort being put, put forth by, quote, moderate Muslims. I don't see us getting there because this is hard. I think it can get there. It should get there. But at this rate, it's not going to get there unless... Something changes within that world. And the hard part for us is, when I go out and talk about this, a lot of Muslims just hear, oh, he doesn't like it. Muslims, you know, he's criticizing Islam. What you need to be hearing is, if you're truly a moderate, thank you for helping us talk about this. Because we need to talk about this. We need to talk about it and not be called racist or, or xenophobes or, or bigots. We need to talk about it because this is the great challenge of our time. And if we don't meet that challenge, when I say we, I, it's the royal we. It's not me. It's those people in this faith who have to deal with this, with this issue. Yes, that's good. That's beautiful. Thank you. I, I will say one, one comment on that is that's, that's actually encouraging to hear. Um, but it's very, be careful of what moderates you talk about. 
I was at Harvard. Uh, I had two Muslim women, uh, a, a Muslim man, come, after, come up to me after my talk, and we talked for 30 minutes. Uh, they were not happy with what I was saying, but so we just worked through a whole bunch of issues. They looked, I would not have identified them as Muslims. I, they had no discernible uh, garb or, or anything that made, you, made them stand out. Um, and they described themselves as sort of mo- as committed moderate Muslims. Okay, so I listened to their com- their, their concerns and complaints, and I and I said, well, okay, we got into an issue. I, I said, wait a minute. I said, you say you're a moderate Muslim. And she said some things to prompt me this question. I said, how do you feel about this concept? Can you, as a moderate Muslim, convert to Christianity and not be subject to being killed? Because that's certainly certainly the jihadis teach that you cannot convert, and you, you're subject to die. Can you convert? She goes on and gives a very long answer about how she wouldn't convert, and that she certainly could convert. And then she ends it by saying, "I could do whatever I want in this country." And I said, "Time out. What if you lived in Saudi Arabia? What if you lived in a Muslim country, not here in the United States, but in a Muslim country? Could you convert?" Silence. Silence. Fumbled around, looked down. The young man stood up and stood up. He was standing the whole time. He said, he stepped forward and said, that's different. I said, really? How is it different? Well, in Saudi Arabia, Islam and the state are one and the same. And therefore, if you convert in Saudi Arabia, you're a traitor and you're liable for treason and you can be killed. This is a moderate Muslim at Harvard who is a jihadi. This is a moderate Muslim. So you have to ask the question to moderate Muslims, how moderate are they really? If you're saying that someone doesn't have the freedom to change religions because of where they are, is there a difference between a moderate Muslim and and the folks living in these caves other than the fact that they don't want to do violence? No, I'm saying moderate Muslim, and, and, and I'm saying this man, not all moderate Muslims. It's not a private dialogue. I am a Muslim. I don't live in a cave, Rick. Um, you painted a, a lovely picture um, of, of nutters and, uh, and reasonable men um, who, who make up this, this world of yours um, and talked about a, a Judeo-Christian tradition in Europe, an exclusively Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, it pains my heart to, to burst that bubble, but this is a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition of philosophy in Europe. Plato was brought to Europe and into Latin by Averroes and Avicenna, right. as you know. And if abandoned. You, as a Catholic. If and abandoned read, if you, two centuries later. If you read any Aquinas. And abandoned. Stop. And abandoned. <laughs> that, thank you, Rick. Freedom Sorry. of speech Hold on. the American. But, 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 just, but, just, but just either comment on my comment. And abandoned. It certainly, not only did, did, not only did Plato get brought to the Middle East and to the Islamic world, but it was added too. Was, there, I, there, was, there were great contributions in the Islamic world, and then it stopped. I don't think it did. The, the Islamic Republic of Iran is a neo-Platonist state built on Republican theory. That's exactly what it is. A neo-Platonist state. The, the mullahs are part of Plato's uh, understanding of how a, a state should be run. Well, no, if you, if you read Plato, which I'm sure you have, 
you'll understand that the interpretation of a philosopher king with, alongside an Islamic tradition of philosophy, which is very rich in itself, would draw you and could draw you to a Shia Republican theory that is very similar to the Islamic Republic of that Iran. That the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority will, would, would lie in the, in the hands of, of, of mullahs, which is what happens in, in Iran. That, that's, that's Peto's envisioned republic? I dare say no. Well, it, the bounds of reason are, uh, which, which you draw may be slightly different to those that are drawn in Iran. But I'm sure as a, as a Democrat and as a pluralist, you would say that uh, the Iranian people have their own right to their interpretation of a particular Republican theory which emerges from their own tradition. Is, is, is the, is the Iranian, are the Iranian people's thoughts being represented in their government right now? I would say in, in the existence of the Republic, yes. In certain governments, no, but then they have the opportunity to elect governments do as they, they please. Do they? Of course they do. Do they? Well, not if you watch Fox News, but I believe that they well, do. No, no. <laughs> So, I, would, I would say that they do. So, 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 so if, the, you let me, if you let me continue, So, no, I, I, let's, I think this is, I think hopefully this is illuminating in some level. I hope so. So, uh, so, so the people of Iran can, can elect whoever they want to the presidency. It's not, it's not. Well, the, they don't say so on Hannity and Combs, but yes. No, they, they do. Every five well, years, and yeah. the, reason, the reason they don't say so on Hannity and Combs is because it's not true. Okay? Because they don't elect whoever they want. They, I, I, I've spoken to dozens of Iranians. They, and, and, and read a lot about Iran. The, the people who are no, nominated for president are selected by the mullahs. They're not selected by any process that the people engage in. So the mullahs have a choice. Sort of, if, they, if you believe the Soviet Union was a democracy, then Iran is a, is a democracy. Because they put up a candidate or two, and you can choose between who the mullahs think you should govern you. Well, which in effect happens in the U.S. by, by different ah. means. By, by ah. different means. Okay. Well, then by you have a means. fundamental yeah. misunderstanding of U.S. politics, not a, a misunderstanding of Iranian politics. Well, if I, if I continue with, okay, you, you, fudged, you fudged the al-Mahdi issue fairly well. Um, the Messiah is something, is, is an issue that pops up in all theology, in Christian and Jewish theology as well. I would ask you whether you believe in the a second apparition of Christ. Yes. Well, in, in Shia theology, there is a messiah too. Yes. Not, not, a, not a warmongering messiah who I didn't comes, say he was. comes with a nuclear missile. Whoa, 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 no. no. Time out, time out. I mean, the, you know, you're entitled to your, to your own opinion. You're not entitled to misinterpret my facts, okay? What I said very clearly, that I didn't say the Mahdi was someone who was going to bring a nuclear weapon. I don't, I don't think anyone can walk out of here with a reasonable uh, understanding of that. What I said was that the people in Iran who would like to see the Mahdi, who will rule in peace and justice, would like to see him come, believe they can get him to come by doing this. I'm not suggesting the Mahdi thinks he can come by doing this. I don't know what the Mahdi thinks. What I do know is what Ahmadinejad at least propounds Excuse to my cynicism, but I would say that the, the real reason they want a, a nuclear weapon, if they do, which we, we haven't ascertained, is, is to create a multipolar world, not to, not to bring back the Messiah. Well, uh, I would just uh, suggest that if you read what, uh, what Ahmadinejad says, if you read what uh, a lot of the ruling mullahs in, in Iran say about uh, the, uh, the desire to have the Mahdi return and his imminent return, uh, you, and you read the writings of the Hojatiya, it's pretty clear of what they want to accomplish. Sorry, can we move on? Um, somebody at the back, we've been at the front for a while. Um, the gentleman at the very, very back there, his hand up, yeah, with his striking tie. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much for your talk. 
Um, it's been very entertaining. It's been very hard to hear anything like that in Europe since 1939. You've, 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 you've applied Nazi rhetoric. You've produced winners and losers in your, in your discourse. You've asked some people here, and they feel obliged to say that they are moderate Muslims. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, I, you've, you've completely misunderstood the words that, that, that you could understand if you took a course here. Assimilation. Sorry, do you have a question? Culturalism. Culture. Assimilation. You just have no idea. You're doing a great disservice to your country. Great disservice. Well done. Well, Thank I you. appreciate your question. What's the point? Uh, <laughs> What's the point is the question. No, well, what is the point? The, the point is uh, you're... you're you're, you're entitled to your perspective. And I, thank you. Uh, and, and I've laid it out. Uh, every time, and I didn't do this here, and I will do it now. Uh, every time I give this speech and I talk about this subject, I say this in, as sincerely as I possibly can say anything. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I am absolutely wrong. Uh, and you say, yeah, you haven't heard this since 1939. Well, what you heard... A lot prior to 1939 were people who maybe espoused your point of view for a long time and refused to see evil for what it was, and the cost was horrific on a world. Uh, and they are now looked at in history, and at the time they were looked at as great men, learned, people who understood the power of human reason and negotiation and multiculturalism. And now they are looked at as fools who didn't recognize the evil that was on the doorstep that threatened the very existence of Western civilization and, and world freedom. Now, I could be the fool. I freely accept that. I've been called worse. But I do think it's important that we fools get heard every now and then. And that, that, that what we have to put forth as a reason. It's not, I don't think you heard here today an ad hominem attacks on cultures, religions, to the extent that I'm capable of nuance. I tried to do that. And, and I did in, in a way that hopefully was provocative, not uh, uh, inflammatory. So the gentleman with the microphone. Uh, Regarding the uh, war issue, actually, uh, I think you puzzled me a little bit because uh, in one sense you said the oil was a cause, as the you know, spelling word letters. On the other hand, you said it's ideological war, and therefore uh, I agreed with Iraqi war. You criticize Iran, but uh, you are making war uh, in Iraq. Uh, and then therefore, uh, how would you solve this complexity? If this is partly an ideological war, why don't you fight with Islamic discourse? in an ideological way. Also, you are dismissing the cause of evangelical cause in Iraq uh, totally, and then you are showing uh, Islam is a brutal ideology, uh, and uh, then therefore you are completely uh, abolishing uh, in Hitler uh, or in fascism the element of Christianity, and then it's uh, misusage uh, in that sense. So my question is uh, that uh, Muslims uh, advocating the Western ideas, Enlightenment ideas partly, of course, with certain reservations and critics, and uh, we are not Orientalist people, and then we are part of the Western uh, world, and then therefore we are advocacy of the freedom. Okay. And uh, then therefore, I don't think so. We're going to surrender all these ideas, which is important to, to us, uh, just for your own propaganda, 
and then for your own U.S. unilateral uh, interest in that sense. Because once you press on this kind of unilateral interest, like fighting war, Iran or Iraq, in the future you're going to find much more... Sorry, could you, could you be a bit more concise? Yeah. There's another lecture...